Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. But let's draw our attention to Revelation chapter 5. And we'll just read the first few verses here, beginning in chapter 5, down maybe from verse 1, down to um, verse number 7. And our thoughts this morning will be directed in verses 5 through 7. John writes, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereupon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And no, and one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. In the midst, and lo, in the midst of the throne, or rather, and, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. We'll read just verse 8 for the final context. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts, the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb. <clears throat> having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. May the Lord add the blessing to the reading of His Word. Well, here in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, we have the description of the throne of God. And this morning, our focus, as we said, will focus on the Lamb in the midst of the throne. Uh, refer, if you will, to your notes. Um, they remind us that as the Apostle continues his view of heaven, he describes three specific things, a book, here in chapter 5, three specific things, a book, a lamb, and a song. The lamb will be the centerpiece throughout the balance of this epistle. The lamb will be the centerpiece throughout the balance of this epistle. Regarding the lamb here, I would have you note this phrase that is used here in verse number 5. He is referred to by two messianic titles, two messianic titles. We're referring to this as his patrimony, his patrimony. Two messianic titles are given. The first of these is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the second, the root of David. Now, if you'll recall in your mind all the way back to Genesis, and I know if you are participating in the Bible reading program, that was way back in January we're reading through there. But in January, uh, in Genesis rather, in January as we're reading in Genesis, you come across the last few chapters of the book of Genesis, and it's pertinent to near the end of the life of Jacob, and he is blessing his sons. And to each he is given some type of blessing. Uh, and in Genesis chapter number 48, particularly a reference is made regarding Jacob's son Judah that the scepter would never depart out of his hand. Now, with the exception of all of the kings of Israel, both in the northern and southern kingdom, as it were, with the exception of really Saul, all of them could trace their lineage back 
uh, to the tribe of Judah. That was the designation that God had placed on it. Um, of course, it wasn't God's direct will that they have a king. He would have them follow him uh, and to be led by his word and to be what we might be calling a theocracy governed by the commandments of God. And you see that instituted in the lives of Moses and Joshua and really to a greater extent through the book of Judges. But by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, uh, they're in such great fix. Uh, the scripture says that, and this is a very sad commentary, that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And as you move into the opening chapters of Ruth and particularly in 1 Samuel, you've got such chaos that they, that is, uh, the people of Israel after the aging of Samuel had come to the point that where they wanted and yea, even demanded a king. And starting with David, every king that would follow would be out of the tribe of Judah. And so this is a messianic title referencing one that would come out of the tribe of Judah. And then you get this idea here. The second one is the root of David. And this is a common one that's used in Isaiah chapter 11. He's called out of the stem of Jesse, the stem of Jesse. Uh, in Jeremiah 23, he's called out uh, one that is out of the branch of David. But this phrase, the root of David and the, the lion of Judah are messianic. They refer to the Old Testament prophecies of one, Jesus Christ. I should note, we often use that phrase, Jesus Christ, but Christ is a title. It's not, not his name like we would think of. Jesus is his name, but Christ, it means the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the one by which all of the Old Testament prophecies pointed to. And he came unto his own in John chapter 1, and his own received him not. But then we're thankful for those next verses, aren't we? But he gave them power to those that would receive him. To them gave power to become the sons of God, yea, even to them that believe on his name. So, lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David. Now, as the lion of Judah, he was to be viewed as the seed of a woman. The seed of a woman. That's the first prophecy. It was really given in all of Scripture pertinent to the redemption of humanity is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And that's the parallel that you'll have. Uh, the, the serpent and his seed and the seed of the woman and the, the, the seed of the serpent would crush the heel and uh, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's that first mention of the coming of this Messiah. But he would be viewed as the seed of the woman. Uh, and also he's viewed as the line of Shem, the line of Shem. And there's a little error there in the parentheses. It's Genesis 9 26 in your notes, Genesis 9, 26. But in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 26, uh, there is the Nohican promise of Shem being uh, the, uh, the light, if you will, and the, uh, the preeminent of the sons of Noah. In Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 12, you'll find that there is the descendancy through the seed of Abraham. He, this lion of the tribe of Judah, this, this root of David, it's all encapsulating the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. In Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abraham is called to go from Ur of the Chaldees. And what is, he, what is the covenant? What is the pledge? What is the promise that God makes to him? We call it the Abrahamic covenant. But there's the promise of a land, a seed, and a blessing. The idea that God would give him land, that God would make unto him a great nation, and that by his descendants will all nations be blessed. God made these promised covenants with him. Now, as of interesting note, 
they did not occur the moment that God had made the promise with them, did they? At the moment God had made his pledge in Genesis chapter 12 and following with Abraham and later ratified later in a few chapters, uh, Abraham did not possess all the land that God had promised him. In fact, he didn't possess the son, the singular son of promise, Isaac. He would have to wait. And even at his old age, he would yet to see the fulfillment of all of this prophecies. But note, God in a sovereign plan, he has his plan and his plan is in action. And as it relates to uh, this lamb, this lamb will be the fulfillment of this, this lion of the tribe of Israel, this seed of David. Uh, he's also of the tribe of Judah. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14 references this. So lion of Shem or lion of Shem, seed of Abraham, tribe of Judah. Though of the tribe of Judah, not all of the descendants of the tribe of Judah would be David's, uh, of David's household. But this one certainly is, and we won't turn there, but Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogies. And if you'll go to Matthew and you go to Luke, you'll find these parallel genealogies. I believe one traces really the genealogy of Jacob. The other one traces the genealogy of Mary. There is, as you get down through it, some distinction between the two. But they prove, in fact, that he's not singularly just a child or descendant of Judah, but he is, in fact, in the lineage of David and their heir to that throne. Uh, a marvelous thing to consider when you think about the relationship of, of David and the Lord Jesus is how David refers to this. In the 110th Psalm, uh, David says unto his Lord, Lord. And in Matthew chapter 22 and in Hebrews, the reference is given that not only is he um, David's descendant, but he's also David's Lord. Uh, there's a unique place that even David... Uh, as one that had a heart after the things of God. David's an individual that saw, uh, this is a marvelous consideration, that there would come from him one that would be eternal and that is his definitive Lord and Master. That's who this lamb is. These messianic titles, this lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ, this root of David, this lion of the tribe of Judah. Now note a second thing here in verse number 5, not only is patrimony... But I want you to note this phrase. It says, he hath prevailed. He hath prevailed. If you write in your Bibles, you circle that. <clears throat> when I was a little boy, um, this shoe company came out with a little swoosh mark. You, you know what it is? It's, yeah, it's Nike. Uh, and Nike comes from the Greek word, and it's prevailed. Victory, that's the word here. Uh, here this lamb hath prevailed. Uh, it was, that is, he has prevailed over sin. And there's a number of places we can look in scriptures, but he's prevailed over sin. He's prevailed over death. He's prevailed over the grave. He's prevailed over his adversaries. This prevailing Jesus Christ is magnificent in all of its splendor. You think, for instance, over in the gospel account of Luke. Uh, no, the gospel account of Matthew. He's born. What is the first thing? One of the first things that occurs after he is born He's wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. And it's sometime after that, these magi are going to come and visit him. And all of a sudden, what's Herod going to do? Seek to destroy him. Not him only, but all of those. Jeremiah the prophet would write of this and say in prophecy that Rachel lamented. There would be a great infanticide uh, it, to trying at its very root to exterminate uh, this Christ child. Uh, he would go down to Egypt. And then being led up 
he would come and go to Nazareth. He's directed, uh, Joseph being directed by the Holy Spirit, as it were. He grows up in Nazareth. He's marginalized. Uh, in fact, most of his brethren did not even believe on him. They, they scorned him. He would leave from Galilee and Nazareth and would come and spend the better part of three years down in the Judean hill country. And all of these marvelous miracles that he would do. And yet the great ruling multitude that was present and the overwhelming host of people that were there, they despised him. On several accounts, the Pharisees would attempt to stone him or would attempt to kill him after he did his great miracle, and that is the raising of Lazarus from the dead in Luke chapter, um, uh, what is that, Luke chapter 11, 15. Luke ch- John chapter 15 is what I'm looking for. But as he does this great miracle in this presence, they then began to seek to destroy him and any that associated with him. And of course, then we know he's uh, betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He's taken before the pavement, as it were, that raised place by which judgment would occur. No fault was found in him, not once, but on different occasions. And yet those same individuals that just a week before had cried Hosanna, now cry in unison together, crucify him, crucify him. And he's led away into a place called Golgotha, and there he is elevated on a cross between two malefactors. And Isaiah would say he takes away all of the sins of the world are placed upon him. Now, to any man, any one of those accounts would have been the concluding mark. But not to this lamb. The scripture reminds us, he hath prevailed. He hath conquered. He hath victory. And so he has prevailed. He is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. He has prevailed. Um, Earth was his by right of creation. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created time, space, matter, the heavens and the earth. And God created it all. This world and all of its entity belonged to him because he created it. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 said he is the creator of all things. This earth and all of its essence is his by right of creation. It's his by right of purchase. I think the number of times as we reference God's shedding of blood, the doctrine of reconciliation, uh, you know, as we reference you and I as believers, we think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. What know you not? Your body is the temple of the Lord. You are bought with a price. Wherefore glorify God in your body, your members, which are His. I think of Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. The Ephesian elders coming, coming to Paul and they're trying to prevent him from going to Jerusalem. And yet he commends them yet again in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 that they were purchased by his blood. Look at Ephesians. Hold your place here. We'll come right back to Revelation. But look at Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians, particularly these first three chapters, are just full of wonderful truths regarding the redemption of the Almighty God and the wondrous work that he has done towards you and I. It says in verse number 13, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And note verse 14 in reference, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. When you look about this lamb that has prevailed, All of creation belonged to him. 
belonged to him by right that he had created it. It belonged to him by right that he had purchased it. And now in this passage, you'll move to a third portion, and that is that it was his by right of conquest. He is about to take it. Unredeemed man refused him. Unredeemed man has rejected him. In fact, according to Romans chapter 1, unredeemed man has in fact denied him, replaced him, if you will, made him to be like idols, four-footed beasts, yet he shall reign. That's the promise of this one that has prevailed. Mankind never has opened arms and embraced the creator of all the universe. Mankind in its totality has never embraced the wondrous work that Christ has done on the cross. But one day, and particularly as you consider this passage that he has prevailed, one day every knee will bow. One day every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And this is the beginning of this. As he takes his scroll, he's the worthy one. There's none in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth that is able to do so, but he and he alone is worthy to do so. Why? Because of his past. Because of what he has done. Because of the providential will of God that has been overshadowing his earthly ministry by the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. And one day he will reign. Notice his portrayal healed because I find this uniquely interesting. When I come to verse number 5 and we're told that John is mentioned by one of those elders, weep not, the compassion of the elder there. There's a lion of the tribe of Judah. I like that imagery. A lion, you know, you, you might go to old, old world history and look at all of the um, insignias that these various kings have. <clears throat> they all have lions. Some have bears. Uh, but it is some carnivorous, powerful beast uh, that is somehow a, um, a symbol of that throne or that, uh, that realm over which they oversee. And so when we get to this imagery of the lion, it seems to fit with the narrative of what I in my heart would imagine. But I, I want you to drop down and look in verse 6. So he hears the declaration of this one that is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but then, as is to point, been, been the major emphasis, he sees, he sees, he sees, he sees. Chapter 5 is interesting. Up to this point in chapter 5, we'll look at this next week, but up to this point in chapter 5, all of John's declarations has been what he saw. He's going to change around verse number 9. He's going to hear something. But anyway, back to this, this uh, entity. As he looks in the midst, he sees these four beasts that are described in chapter 4. In the midst of these elders, 24 elders that are described in chapter 4, what stands there? Now, I don't know about you, but that does not strike the imagery of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in fact, this lamb is not just any lamb. It's very specific. It is a little lamb. When John looks, this is his portrayal. Number three is portrayal. When John looks, he sees a lamb, a little lamb. And this reference in Scripture is often found in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53. 
And verse 7, that great prophetical tribute that we often look back to as a, as a foreshadowing of what Christ would do on the cross of Calvary. In verse number 7, he's referred to as a lamb that goes to slaughter. Jeremiah chapter 11 references him as a lamb. There are wonderful passages in the New Testament. I think of John chapter 1. John the Baptist described him, described him as, Behold the Lamb of God that cometh to take away the sins of the world. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, refers to him as the lamb without spot and blemish. Yet as we consider the distinction between this lamb and lion, it's important to note that in Revelation, in Revelation, he on 27 occasions will be referred to as a lamb. A lamb. Now note, this is a unique lamb. Uh, you, there are seven things, several things here that are in sevens. You have a seven horns and seven eyes and seven spirits. So let's just mention this a moment. To these seven horns, horns in scriptures refer to authority and a reigning power. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 10, we'll have that imagery given there regarding the horns of authority, the horns of salvation. Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 18 and 19 will allude to this as well. So the seven horns speak of his authority and his reigning power. His power will be on full display. The seven eyes, this is his perfect omniscience, his perfect omniscience by which he is searching, searching. Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4, the eyes of the Lord run to and four upon the earth, beholding the good and the evil. And then we come to the end of verse number 6 and we have seven spirits, seven spirits. This was seen in the previous chapters, the lamps, in connection with the elders. These spirits describe the Holy Spirit in all of His completeness. If there's a unique place in which you're about to find these seven spirits of God, Isaiah chapter 11 will manifest all of them. Uh, but it's quite interesting that to this point, when we think about the Holy Spirit of God, we think about what He does for the believer. He seals us into the day of redemption. We think about Him being the earnest of our inheritance, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1. We think about the illumination that He provides through the Word of God. We think of the Holy Spirit in reference to the point that He indwells us and seals us. These seven spirits are somewhat different in their aspect as we have previously considered them. Look in John, if you will, for a moment. Look at John 16. This is the Lord speaking here in John chapter 16 to His disciples. I want you to notice something. It's quite interesting. We mentioned these eyes being His omniscience, the horns being His omnipotence. His omnipotence, perhaps you could look at it that way. And now the Holy Spirit of God, described by these seven spirits, and that these spirit, spirit, are sent to search the earth for unbeliever. We often look at the Holy Spirit of God as it relates to you and I as believers. That's, that's how we know. That's what it's for. We look in John chapter 15. I'll not leave you comfortless, but I will send you a comforter. It will teach you all things. Look in uh, John chapter 16 here. And something quite interesting in verse 7. It said, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is expedient for you, I'm in John 16 and verse 7, that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will 
send him unto you. When he has come, look what he does. He will reprove. That's the idea of to convince, to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they do what? Listen, this is not talking about what his ministry to the saints. He's not talking about the Comforter coming doing a ministry to you. No, that can't be the case because you're not of the world. You're of the Father. That's why John said, if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. This is his reference of what he does to the unbelieving world. In verse number 9, he says of sin because they believe not on me. Of judgment because I go to my Father and ye shall, or rather, I skipped verse 10. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye, sh, ye see me no more. Verse 11, of judgment. Why? Because the prince of the world is judged. <clears throat> we could spend some time, <clears throat> and perhaps we will uh, down the road a little bit, to, but to speak about the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God during the tribulational time. In one sense... He has stopped the hindering movement that he does. And you have here in the book of Revelations and ongoing, you have uh, the perfect storms of three things meeting at once. You have the wrath of God being poured out in seven seals and vials and trumpets. You have the wrath of the godless God of this world exuding and not being hindered as he has heretofore. But you also have the natural evil of an unconvicted heart of a godless person. You have three forms of evil colliding at one time. That's what will make the tribulational time far greater than anything this world has ever considered in its existence. He's portrayed as a lamb. And these seven spirits are sent forth into all the earth searching for the unbelievers. Now notice, if you will, his performance. He came in verse number 7. He took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. This lamb took this book. This marks the beginning of the end of Gentile dominance. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. We'll turn there in just a second. It denotes the end of Jewish idolatry and its subsequent apostasy. It begins the conclusion or concluding of ecumenical Babylon. And it marks the timeline to the concluding days of Satan's reign. Look, if you will, in Daniel. And there's really two passages to look at, but time will only allow us to look at one. And it's well worth us to take a moment to close in Daniel because next week when we look at the song, we might reference it yet once again. Look in Daniel chapter 7. As you begin reading in Daniel, there's so much prophecy that is given and there's so much of it as you relate to Revelation that, that they, they are, could be considered Revelation and Daniel to be twins, sisters, if you will, in their understanding. David, or rather Daniel in verse 9 of chapter 7 of Daniel references this ancient of days that did sit. And he's talking about this very throne room that John sees, uh, whose garment was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame. 
his wheels as a burning, uh, burning fire. It goes down, if you will, in verse number 12. And concerning the rest of the beast, in the previous portion of chapter 4, he had mentioned these four beasts and five that would arise from thence. In particular, in verse number 5, he talks a second like a bear and um, raises itself on one side. And after this, a leopard in verse number 6. And, and, and all of these beasts that exist and their conclusion given in verses 13 and 14. He says, the rest of these books they had in their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. And I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people nation, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Next week when we look at the song he uses some of those you thou hast redeemed us out of every nation kindred, tongue and people. This is his performance. He is setting up a kingdom that shall never pass away. The other passages, if we were to look there, were not, but it's in Daniel chapter 2, and I'm kind of partial to it in verse number 34 and 35. Daniel describes Nebuchadnezzar's great image of head, a head of gold and silver and so forth, and gets down to the feet, ten toes, mingled with iron and clay. And he said, And I saw a stone not made with hands. It fell from thence and it crushed to pieces this great image. When you get to Revelation chapter 5 and you talk about the Lamb that opens this book of judgment that is about to fall, He is taking His kingdom by conquest. And the times of the Gentiles and their dominance is about to come to a rapid conclusion. The time of an unbelieving world that has resisted the kindness of this Lamb is going to come to a rapid conclusion. And the time of this old serpent, this dragon, this slanderer of saints is soon to be ceased. And you can almost hear in the overture, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. No wonder you'd want to sing a song about the worthy lamb in the midst of the throne. Father, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.